Hello, my name is David, and this is the Hypothetic RL, a podcast about the what ifs of rugby league history. And we have a special episode. We have an, well, I would say, an acclaimed author with us. Uh, how are you going today? I'm great, thank you. It sounds weird saying acclaimed author because the book's only been out two weeks. But I've got a job for that title. I'm preempting it. I'm pre. We all know how good this is going to be, and we all know the rugby league community is going to love it. So, um yeah, do you want to maybe give some of an introduction about what the book's about? And, and um, I mean, I already know a little bit, but maybe just for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the book is Hope and Glory, Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain. Uh, my background for listeners uh, that won't be aware of me, which is probably everyone, uh, I'm, I'm a political historian by trade, looking at the history of the Labour Party and politics. But I'm from a rugby league town. I'm from Wigan. And I've always been interested in rugby league and rugby league history. And there's been a lot of politics happening in the UK in the last few years with regarding Brexit, rugby league towns, where they sit in the political landscape. A lot of the rugby league voters have switched parties in recent years. So there's been a big debate about rugby league and politics. So I thought it was a perfect opportunity to essentially write a book about rugby league and the politics of the Thatcher years. Luckily for me and the book, I think this is the most interesting period for British Rugby League. Probably, I would say, since the game's inception. There's lots more, you know, other areas that people have looked at before. The 1950s was a boom time for the game in this country. Obviously, the great split from Rugby Union is a huge moment. But I think the 1980s is the, is the, is the decade and the early 90s where modern rugby league is essentially formed in this country. And there's lots of opportunities and lots of controversies. And, and the game we're going to talk about today, the uh, 1992 World Cup final, I was actually going to sort of end the book at this point because it felt like a really important moment for Great Britain and British Rugby League. But we essentially, with the publishers, decided to take in the Super League war as well mm. a couple of years after. So this game for me is um, a huge what-if moment. It's a huge moment in British Rugby League and it's obviously a big part of the book, um, Hope and Glory. Yeah, it definitely is. And I realised that when I introduced you, I didn't even say who you are. So (laughs) 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 as you were talking, I was like, hold on, did I actually say Anthony's name? Like, I don't think I said your name. Anyway. More expectation. They'll be like, who's this guy? Who's this guy? He's talking about a book. (laughs) Hope and Glory. I mean, it could be any book. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they've got this point. And they'll see my name, podcast title or something, I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. I could put it in the, in the podcast description anyway. Uh, look, uh, and I'm, I'm very, very appreciative of you talking to me. And um, like you sort of said, you know, you you contacted me after after you've been on the episode uh, with the Rebelly Digest guys talking about same yeah. but same sort of thing. And you said, I'd really love to come on and I'd really love to talk about 1992 and the World Cup final. Um, and I, I was... So I'm impressed you even knew who I was, which was great. Um, and yeah. and then obviously, you know, that you you like the format and everything we were just saying before. So um love the format. I think, I'd, so, you know, you've had Mike on talking about 2003. Mm. Ashes, which is a, for British Rugby League fans still, I was chatting to a former player about it recently. They still think about that test series as a, as a huge what if, mm. as a huge moment for Great British and for the Ashes Rugby League. And I wrote a piece for, for the Raw for Mike about, yeah, what happened to the to the Ashes and, and, and why we essentially need to bring it back if we want to improve uh, the British game. Maybe not so much the Australian game, but I do think the Kangaroos 
would bring something to the Australian side as well. And obviously, you had uh, Michael on as well talking about Michael Allen was talking about the 1990 yep. uh, Test match, which is a huge moment and is another huge moment in the book. But I'm actually going to disagree with him probably for the first time in my life and say uh, I think this game is more important just because I think this was a one-off, mm. an Ashes series, and that was a game that Great Britain could have won. And should have won in 1990. People should go back and listen to that podcast because it was a brilliant episode. But this one is is a, is a one-off, a winner takes all, which means that the attention and the suspense and the drama is just heightened even more because you know you're going into the game knowing that you know whatever happens, you have to have a winner here. And um, the 1990 series, as we'll probably discuss, was a huge leap forward for Great Britain from where they come from in the 1980s where they couldn't get anywhere near Australia mm. and I think there was an expectation that 1992 would be the moment that Great Britain finally broke through and as we'll discuss it might not have turned out that way yeah yeah I mean I think uh, for people who have listened to those other episodes especially one where we did with Michael Adams about uh, the 1990 we did do a bit of a refresh of, of what happened before but I suppose for those who are listening for the first time or haven't listened to that one, yeah. uh, we can we can obviously you know the game is has its roots in in Northern England um, and I mean from Rugby Union but you know the Northern Union and you know England were for want of a better word fairly dominant throughout the first half a century. Um, yeah, you know I, I feel like Australia got some some good victories in there, but you know I feel like Great Britain slash England were were kind of like, you know, this is our game and we'll show you how to play it. Um, and then those sort of great sides of this of the Australians that kind of came through in the, you know, the 60s and 70s and things like that. And, and it was still good contests. Like, you know, there was... Uh, England won the the World Cup final in 1970 or something like that, didn't they? I think they'd, they'd lost Ashes to it, but then won a World Cup final or something like that in that time period. Um, but then from that point on, that really... It was a real big decline in the, in the Great Britain game, and then and obviously we all know about the you know the um, the Invincibles and the you know uh, which one was eighty two the Invincibles and eighty four was the yeah. Indomitables so, or something or something like that or yeah so you're right there's the you talk about like the ninety the top, let's say the post war years where it sort of really kicks off mm. properly the Ashes series for the first bit of that in the nineteen fifties. You get Great Britain teams going over to Australia, and they're absolutely packing out like the SCG and the real draw. I, I, I found something out for the book. It was like when Billy Boston went over to Australia, Australian fans started queuing at like ten o'clock in the evening to watch him play. Twenty-four hours later, they were so excited to see this British side. You had people like Alex Murphy, all the rest of it of that era. Now, then, as you rightly mentioned, Britain is a rugby league country goes into massive decline in the 1970s which is the opening chapter of hope and glory Wigan get relegated there's there's a kind of general feeling of decline because rugby league have been a really popular sport in britain kind of on a par with football if you look at the attendances 40,000 50,000 in the 1950s but as leisure pursuits change, you get the rise of cinema, you get the rise of nightclubs, you get the rise of a lot of different youth culture. People just stop going watching rugby league. There's a massive drop off. And the Great Britain team is seen as a bit of a symbol of that. There's a famous match between Great Britain and Australia. I think it's 1973. I'm never spot on with the exact dates. And I think there was 9,000 people at Wembley. And it's mm. a huge embarrassment for the game. They couldn't get anyone to watch Great Britain, Australia. I think Great Britain won the game. They may have even won the series that year. 
but no one was interested in this contest on this side. Mm. What happens, and you rightly point out, it's 1982. And there's this weird thing that happens, which is another chapter of the book, which is how essentially the kangaroo team that comes over sort of re-energizes rugby league, even though they're completely taking apart all the British clubs on the national side. Because the people watching those matches just can't believe the skill level on show. Malmeninga, Brett Kenny, Wally Lewis, uh, I'm not sure whether Peter Sterling, those sorts of players that came through in that period. They were so different to the British players and the way they played the game that British fans didn't care that they were winning by 50 points. They just wanted to see a show. Mm. And it really does revitalise. And I see that as basically the kickstart of the of the next era. You know, the Congre- the, 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 the Invincibles of 1982. Yeah, they, they basically changed. They reawakened it in the popular imagination in this country. Yeah. And um, so, and then obviously from there, uh, 86 was another dominant tour, but... But uh, I f- I'm interested by obviously you as a as a Wiganer as well about uh, how Wigan's dominance in in the um, or Wigan's sort of move to professionalism kind of brought them forward and and you know it's kind of was the catalyst for them being uh, the Great Britain side being so good in the like late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, that's a really good point. And again, it's another sort of central part of the book. The, the people on the, the the image of the book are. Martin of Fire and Ellery Hanley, mm. who becomes so associated with, with Wigan in that time. It's not just the players. There's there's Maurice Lindsay who comes into Wigan at a point where they're relegated to the second division. And he basically drives the professionalisation of the game in the UK. What's interesting is that he becomes obsessed with Australia after 1982. He sees the professional standards, the speed of play, the defence line, all even the way that the coaches talked about would um, be it was so different to the way that it was talked about in this country. It's hard to imagine now, you know, people of our generation, well, in the UK anyway, we're so used to Australian culture, we're so used to the NRL on TV, we're so used to Australians playing in this country. For a long period, Australians had no presence in the British game. There was a transfer ban, which meant that no Australians could apply their trade in this country, which was put was put in place to stop British players going, going over to Australia. So that was essentially a protection around the game in this country. But that had a huge knock-on effect because during that time, Australia advanced the game and, and were essentially left on the sidelines. Maurice Lindsay sees that the British game is essentially light years behind Australia. And he's basically you know, turns Wigan into a, a sort of prototype Sydney club, you know, from the way the programme is made to the way that they have bands before games to the way that the training facilities are made. He goes to Australia three, four times a year, looks at all the clubs, becomes very close to the Australian administrators. And that's where you end up with a position where once Wigan are over five-year period, they are the top team in Britain again you end up with the World Cup Challenge between Wigan and Manly in 1987, which is an attempt to bring the sort of international glamour to the club side. And that's Maurice Lindsay and Ken Arthurson sort of coming together to do this thing. And that's another huge step in the, you know, in the revival of the the Great Britain-Australia contest, because essentially Great Britain couldn't lay a finger on the Australians in 1982. I think they lost 3-0-79, 3-0-82, 3-0-86, 3-0-87, 3-0-88, 3-0-89, 3-0-90, 3-0-91, 3-0-92, 3-0-93, 3-0-94, 3-0-95, 3-0-96, 
getting a little bit closer in 86 and there's more people watching the game, so there's more interest in it. But Wigan Manley proves in the first World Cup Challenge that British clubs can actually beat these mythological Australians that have been built up in the minds of the British people and the British players. So that's a huge important step. So you're right, Wigan are a huge part of that uh, revival of the game. Yeah, and then... Obviously, we we get to uh, 1990. We're not going to really talk about that because that is the next the next tour, and, and they did get so close. Um, and then that yeah. kind of brings us back to 92. But interesting thing is that the format of the World Cup, and I, I did do an episode on that last year during the World Cup, that the that they changed the format so it was not a it was still a qual- almost a qualification by how you'd played in the previous few years and then yeah. a final based on who had been winning more like the two best teams so um I, I don't know what your thoughts on that is but is that do you think that was maybe another another way that um they couldn't really hold a full world cup because you know they only really had three nations um and you know like is it was it a case of uh the the sort of the british uh, needing to have this this game at Wembley because it needed to be a, a big event. They needed to have a World Cup, uh, but they couldn't really have a whole tournament. Yeah, that's right. I, I I always find it weird looking back at those weird World Cup qualifications because you don't think of it as a World Cup because there's all these sort of qualifying games going on. So I think in 1988, if I'm right, the third test between Great Britain and Australia that Great Britain won... Um, was a World Cup qualifier, I think. And and they won that, which meant that they could potentially, they needed to beat New Zealand to have a World Cup final, but then they didn't. Was there a World Cup final before 1992? In like the late, in 1989 or something like that? Um, I don't don't think they did the 1988 one. I think they did the 80, I think they missed a couple for some reason as right, well. Okay. And then they brought the 92. I'd have to look back again, but yeah, I know... Same. It's an area yeah. that I haven't really looked at, the sort of the World Cup. But I'm, I'm pretty sure there was a, there was a yeah, that game. And then, But then Great Britain couldn't beat New Zealand because essentially the point that I was going to make was that in that period, there was a lot of talk about them having a World Cup final between Great Britain and Australia. Um... Let's have a look. 1988 World Cup uh, final was between... This is good for the listeners. New Zealand and Australia. Right, okay, yeah. 1988 World Cup final. Australia beat New Zealand at Eden Park. 25-12. A match that I've never... I know nothing about this game. But I remember them saying that the Great Britain match between Australia and 1988 at Sydney was a World Cup qualifier. So, yeah, you have an eight-team tournament um, eight matches, Great Britain won four, lost two, Australia won six, lost two. And then they, yeah, they qualify for this final Eden Park, Australia win 25-12. So that's 88. I remember looking at, uh, this has just come back to me, in 88 there was talk that if Great Britain had beaten New Zealand, they would have a World Cup final at Wembley or Old Trafford and that the Australians were abs- actually wanted that to happen, even though they would have had the home advantage. And they had home advantage here. They took it to New Zealand. So clearly there's a, there's a Australian mindset in the late 80s that they want to grow the game through the international side. So when you come to 1992, it's off the back of the 1992 Ashes tour down under where Great Britain do quite well. It's a 2-1. It goes to a final test again. 
And the the day after that final test, they announced that the, the World Cup final would be at Wembley. And the Australians have foregone home advantage to give the international game a boost. I think the Australians recognised that the 1990 Ashes series was a huge success financially. It was the most lucrative Ashes series in history up to that point. Millions made in revenue, sponsorship, uh, all the club games, every club sort of turned a profit. And this is essentially kicking on to the next level where you have this one-off World Cup final at Wembley. You throw everything into promoting this rivalry that's been, you know, festering over 10 years. If you think today, for example, there's no rivalry anymore between England and Australia. They never play each other. The players never play each other on an international scale. Mal Meninga has played in 82, 86, 90 92. He's played Great Britain so many times. There's a real rivalry built up between these players. A bit like you have in the cricket now with players like Stuart Broad, who's played against Australia a lot. So you get to 92 and you've got a real window of opportunity for the international game to exploit this rivalry between the two two countries. Yeah, and um, so I just want to mention, just uh, I always have to mention a bit of Parramatta in this, that uh, Parramatta got to play Great Britain on that 92 tour and actually got to beat them, oh, yeah. even though they sucked. So, um, And yeah. also, uh, Lee Odenron got to race against uh, Martin Fire and and he won, even though he probably ran about 10 metres before the starter pistol happened. Um, but <laughs> many people beat Martin Fire. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Was... <laughs> those, those, I don't know what you feel about those, those tour games. I mean... They always feel like, uh, I mean, they're so lost now, aren't they? But they must, mm. and I never experienced them because before my time, that I think they were going to do a, uh, in 2001, I think Australia were going to play Wigan, Bradford and St. Helens. And then the 9-11 Twin Tower attacks happened and they massively stripped down the, the tour. Mm-hmm. And it and it turned into just a three-game series. I mean, the Aussies weren't going to come at all at one point and then it, 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 uh, it, it sort of, there was a negotiation. Yeah. But I look back and think they must have been pretty cool to go and watch. You know, go and watch a Wigan v Australia, nineteen eighty six Central Park. You look back at the YouTube footage, like thirty odd thousand people there. You are like, that must have been a top event. And it must I don't have know been so like. much fun. And I, I didn't, I didn't get to go. I was twelve, but I didn't go to that game. Um, I, pro- yeah. I, I don't remember why I didn't go, but we didn't go for some reason. Um, but yeah, it was. I think they struggled to sell the club games. So when mm. looking back, like when Great Britain went over to Australia, it was it was a harder sell mm. for, for the for the Manly fans and Parramatta and and whoever. Um, and that was something that I think Great Britain struggled with for a while because they didn't have the top line players. You do see a bit of change. I think in 1984 they really struggled to sell the tickets, and mm. by 1992 there were a lot more top. British players in the game and I think there's this you know people like Australians knew Ellery Hanley they knew Mark Fire and Jonathan Davis and people like that hmm. so um but yeah good that Parramatta got that win as yeah. <laughs> one of their only ones that year uh okay yeah. so I think we've done enough background do you want to do you want to get on to the actual game itself yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so um I think there's probably just a bit of preamble about the game itself yeah because I I, I sent you some media clippings that I yes. found when I was researching the book yes. because this for me and I I don't know how I don't know how many people in Britain really know this because it's we don't really talk about the 1992 World Cup final as much as we do say the 1990 Ashes series because that's a scene as a you know that I, that iconic try at the end that Australia scored is seen as a, such a huge 
what if moment and you've done a podcast so go and listen to that podcast for that 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 issue that um episode really good episode mm. but i think 1992 is actually a more important moment because you've got the two-year window so people 1990 let's go back again wembley is does really well old trafford does really well ellen road People are interested in the international game. Great Britain have, have recovered a newfound respect. When they lose that series 2-1, there's a bit of disappointment that they couldn't see it off, but there was also a recognition that it's Australia, it's so hard to beat them. There was a pride in the British side that won that. 1992 again, they go down under. No British side ever has won down under for a long time. We've never come close. The fact that we took it to a decider, there was again a bit of a pride in that. Take it to the World Cup final. There's then real. It's coming at a moment where British sport isn't really doing that well. In 1992 Olympics, not that many gold medals, if I remember rightly. Rugby union, not in the best place. Cricket, beginning of it, of the slide. Football, the international game. The England had done well at the World Cup in Italia '90 and revitalised um, a bit of national pride in a game that was, you know, in the in the doldrums of the 1980s. But the um the 90 the, the 1992 euros for the England football team is an absolute disaster so there's a real um what would you call it there's a bandwagon developing around this great britain side and whether they can actually be the world champions mm. so the excitement for wembley is um probably the most it's, mo- it's mo- the most anticipation for a rugby league in this country it, uh, for a rugby let me say that again this is the most anticipation for a rugby league game in this country I've seen as a historian looking back at um, a moment. That's because it's pretty much 50-50. The Great Britain team is in a good place. Australia might not be as good. It's still a pretty good team, but it's maybe not as good as it as it was in the in the mid-80s. You've got a full house at Wembley. So the, the RFL, for once, have decided they're going to market the game properly. They've spent a hell of a lot of money on a big poster campaign for Martin Afire. Now, this again was a first for rugby league. This is the first time, and I think the last time, that in this country we've ever decided to sell a game on the back of one player. This, The advert for this game was, will the Aussies catch a fire at Wembley? And it was all about, you come and watch Martin Afire play and see what he can do. He'd just broken the world transfer record. He was. He had columns in newspapers. He was on TV. He was the most famous rugby league player in the country with Ellery Hanley um, and probably the most famous rugby league player of all time in many ways because he was on things like Question of Sport. As I say, he had a newspaper column. There was lifestyle magazines that looked at... You know, this was the sort of thing that just didn't happen to rugby league players and doesn't happen anymore. You know, this does not happen anymore in, in this country. So you've got this moment of a huge player just signed a massive deal with Nike as well, Martin Fire, which is another first for the game. And Nike put up these huge billboards across the country, which say something like, it says, um, the hands can't, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to the Martin Fire bit, but there's a big Nike advert, a really effective uh, billboard that goes across the country. So this is a moment for Great Britain. And um, yeah, be, on, off the back of the Fire campaign, the game sells out, the media are interested, the back page of the paper on the morning of the game is dedicated to a fire, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Mail, and the Telegraph, the Times, the Guardian. They all have um, big features on various players. 
and there's a sense that this is, you know, the the, the biggest sporting event that potentially could happen to this country for a long time. Um, so that's the preamble. So I, I hope that explains how big it was um, in the in this country. Um, and then I don't know if you want to sort of get into the game itself after that. Yeah. So uh, so uh, thank you very much for sending. You sent me about eight or nine clippings. So they're all from. Yeah. The, either just before, so on the Saturday just before the game, uh, there were a couple yeah. from after it, and the, I mean the thing is that obviously you know, uh, yet alone getting in the sports section now, so some of these were on the front, like on the front page or on like one of the, you know, not maybe not the front page but page three, you know, so there's a, there's an article from uh, the twenty fifth which is uh, talking, which is basically showing like part from like a section from the game and you know talking about um you know how britain lost and then there's like a other parts about you know the, like you said there's the martin of fire uh before the game you know him running with flames behind him kind of thing and a, some an australian with his hands out trying to catch him kind of thing so you know this is this is kind of like maybe not the front page news but it is big news and it is in no, right. before right. and after the game you know so yeah you're right the campaign itself right this is an interesting thing and i do explore this in the book the campaign itself actually became a news story so what the rugby league does and they never do anything like this now they leaked the pictures of the picture of the of the photograph to the media beforehand to be like and what's Martin Afire doing? He's going to be part of this huge billboard campaign on London tube posters. And I think it cost 20 grand, something like that, all in, which, you know, doesn't sound like a lot these days. Probably was, it was a hell of a lot back then for rugby league. But in terms of um, the the potential for this game, for it for it to be a huge moment, they everybody in the game decided all in on this, all in on this. Now, having just said that, I'm going to contradict myself completely because there's a con- there's a controversy, and now this is actually important for stalking hypotheticals and the difference between Great Britain and Australia. Five days before the World Cup final, having spent all this money on Martin Afire, the Lancashire Cup, I don't know if you know much about the Lancashire Cup. Have you ever come across that? Uh, it was a, it was in, a- in my research, yeah. I have, but I would never have known yeah. it until about three years right. ago. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Lancashire Cup. Random tournament that got axed. This was the last Lancashire Cup final, five days before the World Cup final. And it's between Wigan and St. Helens. And because it's the last one, I think people know it's the last one. It's a local derby. It's a final. There's a huge crowd at Knowsley Road. The two teams absolutely smash each other apart. Um, It ends up being, I think, a a 3-2 win to Wigan. Um, It's a real absolute grind. Um, and, and a lot of these players are in the Great Britain squad. People like Gary Connolly, Alan Hunt from Saints, all the Wigan players, like you mentioned, Dennis Betts, Sean Edwards. And they're going at it in this five days, in a state of origin style, level, intensity, local derby. Martin Afire actually gets injured in that Lancashire Cup final. And I just think, another factual, why on earth were they, why on earth were they playing this club game five days before a World Cup final with all these players why was Martin Afire the person that they put on billboards on tube stations across the country on the day of the mirror playing that match where he could get injured? And he did get injured. And then there's there's talk in the in the three or four days before, I think Mal Riley comes out and says, We've got to reduce the number of games in the British. Something that hasn't been rectified. We still play a lot more games in Australia over here. And it just it's just another sort of moment, sort of like, well, what if Great Britain had had a week off to prepare for this World Cup final instead of the Lancashire Cup final? 
So yeah, I, I, having said that everyone was chips in, then the club side does this as well. So <laughs> like with international rugby league all the time, there's some people who are passionately interested in it, and then there's the club side who are like, no, 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 we want to play our club game, you know, bugger that. So um, yeah, that 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 was a sort of funny observation. I don't think that actually made it in the book in the end, but yeah, it was. Um, it's a very it's a very British rugby league thing though to to schedule oh, a final of a of something else before a final of an international like it. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, and, and and I mean you are very right. I mean this this year in the NRL we did play twenty seven rounds, but it's only because yeah. we had three buys, so they still play twenty four games. Um, you guys play thirty or is it twenty seven now? Every. Um... I actually, you know what? I think it's thirty. Um, mm. Well, I, I mean, it changes all the time, right? So mm. we're we're always messing about with the structure of the Super League. So it's hard to know where we're at. Yeah. The other thing that we have, of course, is the Challenge Cup. Yeah. Uh, which adds yep. another, uh, and then we have the playoffs as well. Yes. You know, I, I listened to I was listening to I can't remember which NRL podcast it was, but they were talking about you know we play too more too many games in the NRL. We need to reduce it, and I <laughs> yeah. was like. We're just we're adding fixtures every year, right? You know, we're like, oh, well, let's have a magic weekend. Let's have yeah. more loop fixtures, and that I mean that becomes from the fact that the British game is completely broke. And yeah, they just need more games. Month. They think that more the more you yeah. more games you have, the more money you better sell. But they, and and like I I do listen to a few different you know podcasts from over there, uh, and yeah. you know one of the more well-known ones that uh, that uh, Richard Shawride is on, uh, yeah, talks yeah. a lot about, you know, how there's too many games and him and Phil Kaplan always talking about too many games. And and it, from an outsider, it feels very much right. There is too many. The loop fixtures is always a problem. And the fact that they've got their own name and now they've got their own reputation um, is, is definitely a problem. But then there's also people who just decide they're like, oh, maybe we should play a nines tournament for a magic round. And then maybe we should do this. And, maybe, and everyone's always got great ideas, but no one's ever really putting them into practice and actually fig- figuring out which ones actually are good ideas. They're just kind of floating, floating ideas out there. And unfortunately, I think in this time, what you're talking about, you know, you've got all kinds of different cups and trophies. And because, you know, you obviously had the, the you know, Wangshire Cup and you would have had the uh, the York, Yorkshire Cup. And then there was the Northern Rail Cup, something else as well. And there was another cup. There seemed to be a lot of cup competitions. Um, there was. Yeah. And, and and I think, the, particularly in this period, the Hope and Glory book, the the British are obsessed with cup tournaments. The, if you So we had... The Lancashire Cup, the Yorkshire Cup, the Regal Trophy, which was the John Players Trophy, the Challenge Cup, the the, the main league the championship, and then uh, a Premiership at the end of that. So they were playing like fifty games a year, some of them, and that was because you got more people attending a cup game than a league game. Pete, British supporters in the nineteen eighties and early nineties loved the knockout element. It's why Wigan, you know. People remember the Challenge Cup wins more than the league title wins because the Challenge Cup was the predominant trophy in the game. It's not now. The Challenge Cup is effectively, I wouldn't say it's dead, but it's its dying. It's dying a death every single season, the Challenge Cup, because people don't want to go and watch it. It's not included in the season ticket, so they're not bothered. Mm. Wembley, if you can get 50,000 there now, they're, they're claiming it's a huge success. We're talking 90,000 in the 80s and 90s. We're talking... Mm. Seventy-five to eighty thousand just ten years ago. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, so there's, there's been a real culture shift within the game, and also I think I mean this is going a little bit off topic, but it's sort of in the same thing because in this period we're trying to copy the Australians in everything that we do, and we eventually copy, 
you to such an extent that we have a playoff system at the end of the season. Mm. And I still don't think the British rugby league fans have got on board with the playoffs. Mm. Because if you look at the attendances for a playoff game, they're like 7,000, 8,000. Whereas for a regular season match, included in the season ticket, you could get 15, 16, sometimes 17. When Wigan Saints play on a good Friday, 25. Mm. If Wigan and Saints play each other in a Super League semi-final in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, which potentially could happen, there is not a chance that 25,000 people will be there. Mm. Which is bizarre because it's a much bigger game. It's a knockout. You're probably looking at 12, 13, maybe up towards... Now, hold me to this because I may be wrong because it may be about to happen. But um, it's a, it's a weird... Yeah, it's weird trying to understand where the, the rugby league supporters are at in this country. Whether yeah. they like Luke Fitches, whether they don't. Whether they whether they want Wigan to play St. Helens every week or whether they want to expand. You know, No one knows and that's why the problem... And no one's done the research to find out. And the leadership has changed so much and changed direction so often and tinkered with structure. We're about to change structure again because IMG are coming in. But there's just a complete... Um, yeah, we just don't have the identity. We don't know. We don't know where we're at, um, and we need someone to basically lead us that way. I think when we're in trouble and we're in decline, and as we were in the eighties, the obvious thing to do is just to sort of copy Australia, and we've always sort of done that. And we tried to sort of do that with franchising, and we brought in the six again. We brought in the second. Ref- we tried to bring in the second referee. All these sorts of things. We look at Australia and go, how can we be like the NRL? Um, and this game, actually, the 1992 World Cup final, as we'll probably go on to this, because is essentially the, the moment where people start to say we've gone too far in copying the Australian style. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how we got talking about contemporary. But it's, it's <laughs> because because I directed us that way. That's how I got the interview. Yeah, no, no, it's good. No, no, it's good. I, 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 I thought I might have gone off on tangent. No, no, no. You know, there's, there, there was a tangent, but but I, I directed us that way because I started talking brilliant. about things. But the... Yeah, yeah. You got me riled up about Super League structure now, which is another... Oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. I've, yeah. I've had enough discussions <laughs> with people about Super League structure and, you know, finals and not finals. And, and I never understood yeah. what premiership what the premiership meant in the old days either. Yeah. Like, so like, again, another premiership was just another knockout tournament at the end of the season. So, effectively, it was like... Um, so, Wigan, you know, Wigan or Saints would have won the league and then the premiership is the top eight just playing each other for another final. Yeah. Would be at Old for no just another money-making thing. It's a money-making thing. <laughs> And yeah. it actually did well. Like you would get forty thousand people at Old Trafford for the final. That's where the idea for a grand final comes in, essentially. Um, so yeah, cool. All right. Well, we've talked enough about modern. Let's let's get to this final because otherwise we'll never talk about it. Uh, um, <laughs> so uh, with this game, obviously it was. Uh, if everyone can look at the result and they can see, you know, Australia wins ten points to six, um, and as you can see by the closeness of that result and. It was a, it was a game that was winnable for Great Britain, but obviously they didn't win. So, uh, what sort of went wrong? What was the the real reason for it? I think this is the the important point here is that Great Britain had decided to engage in Australian style tactics. So, the first thing to note about this game is the crowd is unbelievable. You can watch it on YouTube, and I watched it back um, when I was researching the book. And there is so much um, passion in the crowd for Great Britain to win this game. Basically, every time they even kick the ball out um, into touch, you just get a roar because they just want to beat Australia so much. And they engage in a sort of 
Australian style kicking battle. They spend a lot of time kicking into the sidelines. They go for goal. It ends up being 2-2, 4-4, 6-6, I think, at one point. And it turns into a real arm wrestle. And this is a kind of um, huge moment for British Rugby League in terms of its defensive style. Because in the 1980s, they've been criticised by Australians for their defence. 1982 Invincible team come over. They absolutely turn them to shreds. Phil Larder comes in, iconic uh, cross-code defence coach, revolutionises Rugby Union in 2003 and wins a World Cup. The, he basically revolutionises defence in the British game. And you see the fruits of that in this 1992 World Cup final. Australia just can't find a way through the British defence. Britain can't find a way through the Australian defence. And there was a lot of criticism uh, in the aftermath of the game that Britain went away from the attacking style that we'd always prided ourselves on. You know, we'd always sort of been like, well, Australia, they make, they have structure, they're good at defence, they play their sets, then they score spectacular tries, but we're off the cuff. You know, we've got players like Andy Gregory, we've got people like Joe Lydon, we've got Ellery, we've got Martin Afire, we've got Gary Schofield, and they can conjure up a try from nothing. And this was the sort of mythology that had surrounded the British game. But we'd never beaten Australia, you know, playing that way. So I think for this this test, there's a, there's a real um, professional mindset to play a conservative game. And that plays out over 80 minutes. About 60 minutes into the game, Britain go ahead with another penalty. 65 minutes, they're still ahead. Martin Afire, by the way, who everybody has hyped up and said, this is his game, doesn't touch the ball. I think he has a couple of runs from dummy half. Cannot get into the game at all. And we'll talk later at the end maybe about the impact this game had on him and his, you know, how he felt after it. But essentially, um, I think it's in the 70th minute of the game, Alan Hunt, you know, Britain have been playing this conservative rugby league. They've been completing their sets. They've been putting pressure on the Australians. Alan Hunt drops the ball on the 10-metre line. And out of nothing, Australia scored the only try of the match. Mm. Steve Renoff goes over with a play, which I think you might know it's called like the out ball that, that um, Brisbane Broncos had, had used. And Kevin Walters and Renoff had had this amazing partnership and it just bamboozles the British defence. It brings in this... Then to John Devereaux, who, again, another counterfactual, is only on the pitch because Gary Connolly gets injured. Mm. He gets drawn in. Australia score. Renoff scores an iconic try. Brilliant try. And um, Great Britain can't find a way back. Yeah, and I mean, this is that's the thing about this Australian side. You talk, you talk about Walters and Renoff. They just come off, you know, winning that, winning that grand final, their first grand final in 92. Um, and in that game, he scores like a like a hundred meter try, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, there's just there's just that knowledge, and and I mean Steve Renoff, one of the most explosive centers. It, it, he gets like you're saying, like an out ball. He gets a ball on the outside of his defender, and once that happened, he was gone. That was they were never going to stop him. So, but if they don't drop the ball at that point, they're not on their line. Do Do you think that if they hadn't dropped the ball? If they just kind of tried to grind their way to victory, they might have held on for another twelve minutes. Or do you think the tide was going against them? Or this is the thing about the match itself, and this 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 all comes into the sort of counterfactual, the Great Britain Australia rivalry. 
Great Britain had built up Australia in their mind so much as as superhuman. They mythologized them. The Great Britain manager, Ellery, um, Malcolm Reed and Ellery Hanley, had tried so hard to sort of demythologize them. But and you see this later in, in later years as well. Every time Great Britain and Australia play, there's that final ten minutes where Great Britain start to believe, and you did it on the with Mike on the 2003 Ashes, start to feel the pressure. And Australia just never feel the pressure. They play right until the end. So then last 10 minutes, could they have held on? History tells you that they were never going to hold on. But the interest, I mean, 1990, they did hold on, hold on for a victory. And, you know, many people during that game who was there were like, they're going to throw it away. They're going to, they're going to lose it last 10 minutes. They always do. The interesting thing about 1992, I suppose, is the fact that they, they, they'd been so, um, it, it was such a grind that it was, it was that classic game of like, whoever made a mistake was probably going to, you know, lose the game. It was going to be a, a mistake that leads to a try that cracks the defences. Australia dropped the ball on their line a few times as well, but Great Britain just had no way of getting through. There's other times, there's other moments in the game where Great Britain dropped the ball as well, but it's this one in particular. And I think I'll chat to a, 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 a rugby league um uh, historic. Well, he's not a historian. He's a he's a sort of rugby league. I wouldn't wonder we call him a guy called Andrew Foster, but he's a rugby league um, person who was telling me that he, you know, he sort of blamed John Devereux for this um, moment because mm. he was the person who comes out and misses him completely. And actually, it should be Gary Connolly there. Gary Connolly should be at the centres in the centres, and he's a an unbelievably great defender. Had he been there, would Connolly have let Renoff through? Connolly and Renoff end up playing for each other one day for Wigan. Uh, you know, it'd be good to wonder if they ever spoke about that moment, whether Gary Connolly would have been the person who would have stopped him. But mm. it's just classic Australia, isn't it? Like the last, last, last ten minutes of the game when it really matters, they find a way to to pull it through. And you know, Alan Hunt, for example, he in later in later years, the the Observer newspaper asked him to talk about they had a series in the paper which was about sporting i think it was about sporting mishaps or sport basically moments in sport which you would like to replay yeah and they talked about this moment and he talked about fatigue and actually he talked about how actually he'd had a good game and that and he had had a good game if you go and watch it back like he was what like the the, the other winger who was making loads of yards compared to a fire he was a much sort of um, tougher player than a fire not that a fire wasn't renowned for his toughness not that he wasn't tough but he like Hunt was a much more like stronger yardage winger and Afire was the sort of speed merchant on the wing yeah. but you know he'll be remembered for making that mistake uh, by some other people playing Devro. it's one of them sort of who was to blame yeah and I'm uh, I'm just having a look at the one of the articles which is a bit of a rundown uh, it was in the the Sunday Telegraph they're talking about the the try and and things like that and they they also point to the um is it the sin bin that um who, who got the sin yes. bin? Yes. I forgot about them. So Sean Edwards. Gets Sean Edwards, that's it. I, I, I was trying to read it and it kept saying full term. Yeah. I was like, that's not right. Yeah. Um, no, no. So I forgot about this. I'd actually remembered this before we, I was going to mention it before we spoke because I'd forgotten about this moment, right? So Sean Edwards famously in 1994 gets a red card in the first Ashes test against Australia for a high shot on Bradley Clyde. Hmm which everyone sort of remembers in Britain, you know, British rugby league supporters. But I don't think many people remember this. I certainly didn't know about this. Yeah, he gets Simbin for putting his knees in, I think, on on Renoff after a break. Um, and what's funny about that is 
during that 10 minute period, Great Britain don't concede while Edwards is off the field. They actually, you know, revitalize themselves. They have a couple of attacking opportunities. So maybe they thought, you know, we've come through that storm, but then, you know, the energy levels that have been spent trying to defend with 12 men, maybe that's what impacted Alan Hunt, you know, in those last 10 minutes, you know, having to do that extra defence. It's going to catch up with you in the end. So there was a newspaper article I found which blamed, pinned the blame on Sean Edwards because I think in the aftermath, Edwards blames the referee yep. and someone, British, one of the British... Uh, shock jock sports journalist who wouldn't have been a rugby league journalist because rugby league journalists don't really criticize their own would have come out came out and said that edwards was the disgrace to his country and he let them down and all the rest of it mm. so yeah it's interesting that actually you know then then a couple of years later he gets sent off as well yeah well it, it was interesting as well i read in this article that apparently he had um he was upset about the decision uh who was chosen as the actual referee so he was like oh they shouldn't have chose that guy as the referee uh, in the week leading up to it, so they this article is saying, or well, maybe you shouldn't have done that because you might not have been simbined. But I, I don't, I don't think I that's, that. <laughs> I don't think that's yeah. the case. I think if you if you need Are someone we... in the back, you're probably going to get no, simbined. No, no. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, we're not, we're not saying that the referee is corrupt here. Uh, no. I'm not actually sure the referee was, but, but um, I think, I think you're right on that one. I think the thing is, so I remember reading something when I was researching the book. The world's controversy about the referee choice, mm. and Sean Edwards had said something about the referee. I can't remember what, but I'd put that down to sort of Sean Edwards' mind games. Like he's a master rugby league player now, a great defensive coach in rugby union. He was great at sort of the winning uh, mindset and sort of finding that extra edge, which a lot of British rugby league players didn't have. And he obviously was a a great player at Wigan, captain of that great Wigan side. And was essentially sort of the ultimate professional before professionalism really caught on in rugby union. And that's why he's so well regarded in rugby union now. And I think he would have been thinking in before that game that we've got to, we've got to, we've got to put a bit of pressure on the referee because that's what the Australians do. Mm-hmm. And he was obsessed with the Australian game, Edwards. You know, as a youngster, he would be the person who went to the local video store and got NRL tapes and watched Winfield, Winfield Cup games. Before rugby league players did that, you know, now they all watch the NRL and they all watch other games. That's not what rugby league players did in the early 80s. They worked their job, they played a bit of money at the weekend, went to the pub after. Edwards was like, I want to be a professional rugby league player. And I dedicate quite a lot of space in one of the chapters to those early days when he was 16, 17, coming into the, the game. And yeah, so I think he would have seen the way the Australian, I think he would have seen the way Australians talk try and get the advantage over the referee, intimidate them before, and they thought, I'll got that. Now, obviously, people said that backfired. So, you know, maybe he was, uh, maybe he should have been more disciplined on the day. But, yeah, he certainly, he certainly not, he certainly doesn't get blamed for that, um, for that defeat. No, 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 I don't think he should either, because, uh, you know, but but you make a very good point, is that, you know, they did have to defend with 12 for a whole 10-minute period. Um, That extra fatigue might have, may have caused Hunt to drop that ball. Um, and yeah. also might of course the, the the defensive decision. I mean, I know that you're saying Connolly's a better defender, but you've also got a guy who doesn't. Um, did, did he put uh, when he went when Connolly went off the? Um, I can't remember who, who's what, who's the other person who ran out on the line. What? Uh, John Devereaux. Devereaux. Okay, sorry. It, was he was he a centre or was he a, a forward? I don't know actually. I think he, I think he was a centre. I should. Okay. I, 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 
I, I think he was um, a cross cut. So it's funnily enough, I re I did a retweet uh, yesterday because his biography, his autobiography, is about to come out uh, very soon. Uh, Jonathan Davis did a tweet yesterday about, oh, I'm looking forward to John Devereaux's biography, and I was like, that's funny. I'm about to talk about uh, the 1992 World Cup <laughs> final. Um, so he came from rugby union. Um, I know that. Let me just start, let me have a look at what, what position he was. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because I. Was. Yeah, he was. In the centre? Okay, well, that, that, then my theory's, my theory's probably not that great. But, but you know, like, just the, just having someone out well, of position, right. maybe. I'll tell you where you're right, though. I'll tell you where they're right. He was from Rugby Union, right? Yeah, and, well, they can't and, tackle, and, so, and yeah. Not rugby union. <laughs> but particularly then, right, then, in the early eight, in the, in the in the early 90s, when there was a load of cross-code people coming over to Rugby League, another thing that I taught, another plug for the book, another chapter I have is on the cross-code uh, pe- people like Jonathan Davies, Scott Quiddell, Vaiga Twigamala, Fran Botica, all these great, John Gallagher, all these great rugby union players who come to league uh, for money, essentially. Devereaux, um, had, when did he come over? He signed for Widness in 1989. Mm. So he'd been in the game for three years. So questions over defence, who knows? Maybe maybe, maybe that was another counterfactual. Had, had Devereaux, had we had another person there, might, might have been very different. Yeah, so... What we're going to do, we've, we've gone a long way into this to, to get to this point. We have to find a way to, to make a change um, and yeah. then talk about what they would have done. Uh, I mean, in that 12-minute period beyond that try for Australia, was there any, any chance that they could have scored? Or are we just going to say that he doesn't the ball and you win 6-4? There were a few chances for Great Britain at mm. the very end of the match. They, 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 for the last five minutes, they're sort of camped on the Australian line mm-hmm. and they're sort of peppering them, but they just can't find a way through. There's one little moment where Martin Dermott, the hooker, if I remember, sort of chips over the top and it goes dead. Mm-hmm. And I think people are then like, oh, that's the game. The, um, I think the last play of the game, Great Britain are on the attack, 30 metres out. But the, you kind of look at it. I mean, we're looking at it from you know the vantage point of 30 years. You just can't see your way through. Hmm. I think the real, I think there's a the, the, the counterfactuals. I suppose are the the three. I suppose we we talked about three massive moments in the game, which is you know the Edward Simbin, hmm. the Alan Hunt knock on, and the Devereaux, you know, missing missing Renoff from the out ball, which you know was 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 a unbelievable play from from Walters and Renoff. Um, I suppose the other factor, which is 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 how could they have got Martin Afire into the game? Remember, they built the whole thing around Afire. He was Great Britain's gun winger, and he was the person who everybody. Who, who, I think he was the person that scared the Australians the most because of his speed. As you say, he had that race. Who I don't know. It was with in nineteen ninety two down under. He'd impressed on that tour in ninety two. He'd scored against Australia in the 1990 test at Wembley. He'd won the Lanstead Trophy in the Challenge Cup final at Wembley in 1992. And he absolutely loved the big stage. This is the thing. It's quite rare for a rugby league player to openly talk about wanting to be the front and centre of attention. He wanted to be on the billboards. He'd come from rugby union, very different background to your average rugby league player. You know, he'd been to boarding school. He played rugby union. He was from London, born in Hackney, I think and had a confidence that rugby league players just traditionally don't have. They're sort of, you know, score a try. They're sort of, you know, shake hands or whatever. He would run into the crowd and he would sit on the wall of the fence. He would like give everyone a high five in the crowd. And 
there was people like Billy Boston and Alex Murphy who said, I don't like this Afire style. I don't think he should be antagonizing spectators and players. You know, Afire used to do this thing when he was like, he'd made a break and he had 30 meters to go to the line and he was clear and he would sort of hold the ball behind him and sort of dummy it to defenders to be like, come and get it off me. Just stuff that you, mm. you you just never seen before in British game, or at least it was new to this generation of people that were watching it. So, but this 1992 World Cup final, he just isn't there. He just doesn't. He just doesn't get a sniff. Now, is that the tactics of the British side to play the defensive thing? Should he have found a way to get him more into it? I know he massively regretted that game. I've got his memoir here. Uh, it's a biography that came out a couple of years after that game. And he just talks about how he knew there were so many people at home that were watching for him. And this was his moment. He didn't know that he was going to have a moment two years later with Wigan when he scored the try that would give him the statue. But at that moment, he thought he'd blown his big moment in um, in front of the world. Hmm. So I think the, the interesting thing is what would have happened had he scored the winning try in the 79th minute. In a dream scenario, yep. Martin picks up this ball and runs and scores the try he scored in the 1995 Challenge Cup final against um, Leeds. But he does that for Great Britain to win a World Cup. And I think that is the dream scenario for British Rugby League fans and for Martin Afire and for everybody that, you know, we can't imagine. But it's not inconceivable that Afire could have done that. He was the sort of player that could have just picked up a ball, run past. He would have probably had to beat, what, someone like Andrew Ettinghausen, I think, would have been probably playing. Mm. Um, let me have a look who was the Australian. But yeah, Tim so Brasher would have been at fullback. Brasher. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I've, I've, got the, I've actually got the programme here. Let's have a look at the, uh, the Australian team. Yeah. Willie yeah, Kahn, Willie Steve Riff, Michael Hancock, how fast was he? Uh, yeah, he's reasonably right. fast, but not. There was no speedsters apart from Renoff. I think he's your speedster. Um, that's pretty much the fastest player, I would say. Um, Tim Brash was a fairly Fire. fast player. Oh, Fire could have. You oh, know, if Fire was faster was... than all of them, definitely. Yeah. So if, he, if you got free. And they. Yeah. they I, I'm imagining a scenario where he gets past the front line, he. He runs yeah. around Tim Brasher and he scores under the posts. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that's you looking back at this game. So everything I know of of the British Rugby League and everything I know of the the quality of these players that you know you, you're talking about guys like Sean Edwards. We haven't even mentioned Ellery Hanley, but Ellery Hanley, um, Martin Fire, yeah. um, Gary Schofield, like these guys. I know we know from my like you know twelve year old brain thinking. Yeah, you know, these guys are, are champions, right? I look at the Australian yeah. side, and the Australian side is also champions. But yeah, yeah. there is, I don't know, maybe because I was so used to seeing them so often, I don't mm. think they're all fantastic. I think they're all reasonably good players. But, like, you know, there is, there's some great players in there. But there's to a point where, like you said, all, all you need to do was get get him to a point where he was, like, one-on-one against the his opposing winger or, or he... You know, he picks up a loose ball and runs through the line, and and as soon as he's through the line, I I don't think anyone stops him. Like I I, I love Tim Brasher. I think Tim Brasher was a fantastic fullback, but I don't know if he tackles him. Um, yeah. With the speed that a fire has, I think he would he would just run around him. Um, and yeah, and that, look, I can very much imagine that. So let's let's say in the seventy eighth minute, a loose ball picks it up, gets through the line, goes around Brasher, scores under the posts. Um, uh, Fox kicks the goal and, and England win 12 points to 10 
and they win the World Cup, uh, the World Cup final, not the World Cup final. Um, yeah. Now, what does that do in terms of the future of of rugby league and the future of uh, probably the English game is probably the way you'd have to describe it. And I might have to talk about what the Australian game would do. Yeah. So, having we've done all the context, so we've established that the Great Britain Australia rivalry is in a really good place at this point. But the thing that it really, really needed was Great Britain to win. It needed Great Britain to win for two reasons. One, for the effect it would have in this country for rugby league, which means that no longer can we say that Great Britain cannot beat Australia. They've done it. They're the best team in the world. When this game was played, if you listen to the commentary back, the Australian commentators say that this is the best British performance in defeat for 20, 30 years. And that Australia have been in a real game here. And that's the sort of that's the sort of level that Great Britain were trying to get towards for so long that they could play Australia in a one-off test match anywhere in the world and they could go toe-for-toe. And they'd spent 12 years getting there. This would have been the crowning glory for everyone who'd been involved in the game in the 1980s. In the book, I talk about administrators like David Oxley, who'd revolutionised the game slowly, there's a slow revolution in terms of professional standards, in terms of taking big matches to grounds like Old Trafford. That wasn't done before. He was the person who initiated that 50,000 people watching the Kangaroos. So rugby league is coming, becoming bigger. It's becoming bigger because of the Kangaroo Tour. The thing that it needs is a victory. We've seen, as you, as, you, as you pointed out, all the newspaper clippings that are interested in this game. So the back pages will be clear, ready for a Great Britain victory. So... In the immediate aftermath, you're talking back page, front page, profiles, a fire if he scores the winning try. He's going to be an absolute superstar. He was a superstar before the game. If he's a World Cup winner and the person that leads Great Britain to victory, he goes on to another level. We're talking chat shows. You know, we're talking... uh, TV Children's TV shows like Live and Kicking, The Big Breakfast. Now, he, he does these anyway you know, later on because he's that big. But it would have been times, you know, 10 times 20. The bigger question is whether Rugby League in England would have capitalised on the boom. Now, this is the last game of the... uh, For your listeners who who won't have read the book and might not know about the administrators in Rugby League, David Oxley was the administrator from 1974 to 1992. He had to retire in 1992. And a guy called Maurice Lindsay... It's due to start as the head of the RFL the day after this World Cup final. And he talks about how a victory in this game would propel the game forward 10 years in terms of all the work that it needs to do in terms of sponsorship, marketing, advertising, getting a sponsor for the Great Britain team, revitalising the international game, revitalising the club game. They're adamant that if they can get a World Cup victory here and get that national profile, get a success story for British sport, as I said at the beginning, not many good British sport, English sports teams around at this period of time would have been absolutely huge. The other thing that you've got is the rise of the Premier League, which is in 1992 as well. So football is going in a new direction. And Rugby League is starting to think of itself as needing a Premier League. Now, we have the Super League that happens about in 1995. But you get the feeling that a World Cup victory here, a renewed interest in the the international game, a recognition that the international game can be the thing that carries the game forward, 
that might have propelled a speeding up of changes in the club game. Because what you essentially get is you get a four-year, a three-year wrangling over how the game is going to, you know, organise itself. That, that is a slow process. <clears throat> and a World Cup victory would have obviously brought in more revenue, would have brought more people into the game, would have brought in blue-chip sponsors, which is the thing that Maurice Lindsay was adamant that the game would have needed to do in 1992 it had to get more big businesses involved in the game well one way to do that is to have a successful national side off mm. the back of that you might have got more celebrity for the players as well the young players coming through it w there would have been a window of opportunity now i can't i don't know i i you, you get the feeling with the way that british rugby league has run over the past 50 years or so that they would have found a way to mess it up the club game would have been too <laughs> insular it would have protected itself Revenue coming in would have probably got spent on transfers. Who knows? That's the beauty of sort of ha discussing this question. But there is no doubt that it would have been the biggest moment for British rugby league potentially ever. And I'm I'm not being over dramatic when I say that. I'm being I'm saying it because there was never this much focus on one game as there was on this game. So to have the success and to have millions of people who probably never watched a rugby league game in their lives watch that great moment. Who knows what would have happened? We saw 2005 Ashes with the cricket, where England hadn't won an Ashes for a long time. They win that. There's a boom in cricket. 2003, Rugby Union World Cup. Hate talking about Rugby Union uh, to, to dear listeners. Right. We've mentioned it quite a bit. But they have a moment where they win the World Cup against the Wallabies. And it's pandemonium in this country because everybody wants to get behind a winning side. Hmm. British Rugby League has never had that moment. We haven't beaten Australia for... How many? I don't even know how many years it is. I think it's like the 1950s was the last time we won an Ashes series in the UK. Hmm. We've never, we haven't won a World Cup for years. We didn't even get to the final this year. Like it's, international rugby league in in, in the UK is is, is is utterly irrelevant to most people, <clears throat> bar the, the you know the hardcore people who watch the the club game anyway. Hmm. Here was a moment where it, where we had an opportunity, and because we couldn't get over the line, we didn't get that opportunity, and it's such a turning point and that's why you know it was, it, it's been good to chat with it i'd love to hear what you think the australians would have done had they lost well uh, a world cup i think one other thing i'm just going to jump one on there as well might be might be from the english game is that i think that the fact that they would have won in 92 when the kangaroo tour happens in 94 i feel like that would have been a bigger thing because it would have been australia's first chance to to beat britain back again like you know i mean basically their first time um and i think that maybe crowds over in 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 england would have been a lot larger i think that was still pretty good in 94 but it, the interest would have been at fever pitch because it's like we're the world champions and these australians are coming that's to knock us off again so that's the case um i think australia probably would have at that point australia was kind of because they'd won so often i think they were mm -hmm. taking it for granted and i think losing a game might have made them realize well we've got to you know we've actually got to take more take a little bit more care with this and we've got to maybe sort of like you said you know they, they wanted this to be successful and it probably i think they would have enjoyed losing in a in a roundabout way because it would have meant that we have this we have this great britain side that we can be competitive with again and we can sell this again you know what i mean like it's i feel like even though in 82 and 86, Australia would have loved the fact that they went through undefeated and, and, you know, destroyed them. By the time it got to, you know, 
the 90 tour where they, I mean, they, they only just went one there as well. And then 92 and obviously winning there as well. And then winning the world cup, it was kind of like, well, they, they don't really give us a competition anymore. So what's the point of even playing them? And, I've, and obviously, you know, 94 ends up being the last kangaroo tour. So, uh, and that, that's for other reasons, but I think that I don't think it would have made a massive change in Australia. I think it would have been about the same, uh, but I think maybe a little bit more respect. And it may have been an interesting thing because during those first kind of that 95, 96 time, it depends on what happens in 94 as well. Like if if um, Great Britain backs it up and wins the 94 Kangaroo Tour or Kangaroo Series or uh, Tasha Series, um, then you get into the point when, you know, the Australians are going, oh, we've got the best players in the world, but they they kind of just took for granted that they were still better. Even though there was a lot of hype about guys like Ellery Hanley and hype about guys like, you know, Fire and Schofield and things like that. Um, I'm saying the same names over and over again, but, you know, I mean, the hype about those ones. Yeah, not yeah, not one... Not one time did they, like early in the time of when Super League was proposed, not one time did they go, let's go over and poach these English players and bring them over. Um, let's try and get them into our competition. They didn't, they were an afterthought because they didn't respect the game. Now, if they had, if Great Britain had won in 92 and had a good account for themselves in 94, there could have been a weird scenario where uh, the the Super League in Australia actually went over to England and tried to poach the English players to come play in Australia in in a Super League competition, or or actually paid more attention to it and tried to. I mean, I know they eventually did have Super League, but um, yeah. it was almost that afterthought because they were trying to screw the ARL from not being able to play internationals anymore. So there could have been something like that. We could have ended up with you know Martin Fire playing for the. Uh, Canary Bulldogs or something, you know, like it could have, that could have ended up happening. Um, anything like that could have happened. So that's that's my only thought of what may have changed. But realistically for Australia, I think it would have taken a victory in this World Cup, a victory again in that um, in that 94 Ashes series for them to really take notice. Because I think it just a one-off game, they would have went, that's a one-off game. Especially if they'd lost in the last minute and went, oh, well, we'll just get better for next time. Um, I don't think they would have taken it as seriously. But a win, like a loss in a World Cup and a loss in a series, especially, you know, like that's two in a row, I think that that, that might have probably done something. I think I think that's right. I think you're really I think you're spot on with the 1994 Ashes series and what it would have meant had Great Britain won this. I hadn't really thought about that. If you think, if you look at the first test at Wembley when Jonathan Davis scores the try that beat, you know, Great Britain beat Australia with 12 men, I think the attendance is 54,000. So it's about 15,000 down on this this match. And you you can imagine had Great Britain won the World Cup, like you say, it would have been the world champions are at home. I'm I'm pretty sure they would have been able to sell Wembley out for that because it would have been. Right, Great Britain are now the dominant team in international rugby league, and we haven't been able to say that for a long time. Mm. And then they go and on to win that first that. test, and then the second test would have been an, an epic thing, yeah, exactly. you know. And you do, there is a real feeling, and I allude to this in the book that the nineteen in the night in in nineteen eight in the nineteen eighties it had been all about getting closer to Australia. So nineteen eighty two hammered, nineteen eighty six put on a good show. 
get closer. 1988, they win one test in Sydney. 1990, they're back in the game. And at each stage, the fans are are on board with it. The aftermath of 1992, there is none of that sort of we did really well. There's a real disappointment. You look at the new, there's a real fallout in the media about this. Lots of people say this was a missed opportunity. No one is saying, well done, Great Britain. We'll win next time. Yeah. Everyone's looking at where did it go wrong? Where did it go wrong? There's a big debate about the playing style. Alex Murphy, a legend in the 1950s, as we talked about, he comes out and just says, why didn't we get a fire into the game? This was a disgrace. And he blames it on the British being too much like the Australians now. It's all about defence. It's all about completion. It's all about kicking to corners. It's all about going for goal when you get the chance. And he's saying this is not the way to play rugby league. Hmm. And a lot of people say it's one of the most boring matches of all time in the in the aftermath because they were expecting this free-flowing, attacking rugby league, what they've been used to. But what it was was like a traditional, what we would now call a state of origin style grind where there's literally nothing between these two sides, you know, it, and, and no one can find a way through. Defence is on top. And we're so used to seeing really good defensive contests now that we just expect it when it's two great teams playing each other. This was a bit of a shock, I think, for British rugby league supporters that we'd engage this. And not a lot of people liked it. People didn't like the fact that we tried to play the Australian way. And we'd lost. We'd given up everything to, to win and we couldn't even win. So you're right, winning fixes all that. No one cares about the way you play a game if you win. Mm-hmm. Winning will solve everything. No one would remember any of the things we've talked about, the knock-ons, the simbins, the rest of it, had we won the game. But that's the beauty of the counterfactual. And as a historian, you know, I've always got to think of the counterfactuals when you're writing because why did that person go that way and not that way? Why did they take the game here and not there? Why did they expand here and not there? And you've always got to be thinking about the things. And that's why the 1992 World Cup final, and I wanted to bring it as a key point of the book, is because that this is a moment, it's a fork in the road for rugby league. Winning, you go one way, Losing, you can still go another way and lose and you, you don't do anything. It's hard to know. Rugby League still does boom after this game mm. and we get the people. Yeah. What we, this is the point of the discussion is, could it have been bigger? Could the international game have been, been revived? Yeah. Through Great Britain victory. And that's the, sort of, that's the sort of thing I've always been interested in with this game. Yeah, um, I, think it, I think there's a real possibility that they win. Then... The '94 one, obviously, you're talking about the first, the first test, going to have a bigger, bigger crowd. The second test, you know, like with a bigger crowd doing the same thing they were doing in '92, where they were cheering as the ball went out, and they were, you know, they were sort of cheering them on. Do they get a famous victory? Do they win that series two-one, or you know? And then at that point, they've then won a World Cup and a, and an Ashes series, and. Mm. I think that, I mean, obviously there's a boom, but the boom comes partly from what happens here, but partly because, you know, an eccentric billionaire decides to throw a bunch of money at them. So, yeah. you know, like, and, and it was an afterthought of throwing money. It could be a case that they would go, oh, we really need the English game. So instead of giving them, I don't know what they got, 87 million, something like that, they might have got 200 million. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They might have thrown more money at them to go come across and play this game. And, you know, if there's more money in the game, there's there's more growth, there's more things that can all happen. So, you know, they might not have run, the, run out of money in the first five years like they did. 
I think, that, I think it's a really good point. And I think the international game was something that sort of got lost in the Super League yeah. war because it was all about, well, let's we can't compete internationally. Let's have Wigan v Brisbane. Let's have you know Bradford v Cronulla or whoever, whoever ended up playing the '97 World Cup Challenge. <laughs> let's not mention that thing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll do another podcast yes. uh, that we're both familiar. With. But the the. The, 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 and that, that this is the beginning of the end for the international. I think the 92 World Cup final, we have 94 and 97 in 2001, but this is the beginning of the end of Great Britain thinking, I think, that they can match Australia and that they can get over the line. Yeah. After this moment, it psychologically is always in the heads that Australia are going to beat us. And it's never gone away. You know, if England play Australia in a World Cup final in 10 years' time, if we ever get to that point... And in Great Britain or England are ahead with 10 minutes to go, they will be thinking, we're here again. Can we hold on? You know, can we hold on? We've never got over the line when we've needed to. And this was the moment to do it. And we didn't. And that happened. It's sport. You know, no one's to blame. It's a great Australia time. It's a great, great Britain team. But yeah, what a moment it might have been. And a, and a great count, you know, a great what if moment in rugby league history. Definitely. All right. Well, I think we might stop at that point because otherwise we'll keep going and we'll start talking about uh jack wellsby and we'll get too far so yeah (laughs) so thank you thank you thank you so much for joining me um and like i said uh anthony broxton uh you've got your book coming out or it's out in it's out in uh, england at the moment um sat in the uk uh sorting out australia um, publication soon and there's a few copies flying around in Australia at the minute uh, some some journalists have managed to get hold of a copy which is good <laughs> and yeah I'll, I'll, be, I'll be doing my tour of Australian podcasts and Australian shows and British shows so yeah hopefully you'll hear a bit more from me about uh, British Rugby League perfect alright thanks Anthony I'll talk to you later yeah David